Hello and welcome to Intuitively Being You, a podcast about finding your intuition, living from your intuition and creating the most aligned, abundant life. A life that's guided by your intuition and inner wisdom, a life of healing and growth and a life of truth, a life of who and what is truly you. I'm Desi, I'm a coach, intuitive guide and more and I'm here because I listened to my intuition. Thank you for listening to yours and for joining me and let's get into today's episode. Hi guys and welcome back or welcome to the pod. If you're new here, I'm Desi, I'm a coach guide, energy worker and yoga teacher. This episode is part one of what I think will be two parts in total on the history, philosophy and the true purpose of yoga. If you're listening to this, you probably know that yoga is a lot more than the one hour movement classes we generally think of as yoga in the West. But even then, you might be finding yourself asking the questions of what exactly is the wider yoga? Where does it come from? And how has it changed throughout history? And as it's moved from its roots in the East, in India to the West. For me, that's definitely been a part of my yoga journey. About a year ago, I started my yoga teacher training and when I was asked what I was most excited about studying, without doubt for me it was the philosophy and the spiritual aspect of yoga. Whilst my training didn't kind of go as deep into this as I would have wished, it was a teacher training for teaching in the West and so it kind of had to focus on some of the more probably practical they would, that's how I feel like a lot of people would describe those parts, like the more practical parts of teaching yoga. But even then, it gave me a really good start on the key texts, the key philosophies and the long journey of yoga, which is quite hard to delineate at some points. Like there are, there is still debate for exactly when some texts were written, exactly what and who inspired who. There's even debate for whether it's say there's this text called the Yoga Sutras, there is debate on whether the supposedly the man who wrote it, Patanjali, was indeed one man, or if it's a series of people who just had the same title. So yeah, since my training, I've dived uh, dived a lot, did I say die? (laughs) I've dived a lot deeper into the philosophy and the spiritual path that yoga offers and I as I was concluding my research and plan and like pulling everything together for this episode I did realize that a lot of the words that I use kind of because they're the words that um, are used in translations of yoga texts and in commentaries on yoga philosophy I realized that a lot of those words we don't often use as much anymore so for example yoga talks about purification and cleansing which to us we can translate as healing yoga also identifies between the ego and the atman which is our soul and in more modern day spirituality we might look at the lower self and the higher self or our lower self and our soul Either way, at its core, yoga is a path to enlightenment, self-actualization and merging with our higher self and the divine 
So as I share what I know and how I've interpreted these different texts and teachings, because everything is an interpretation, right? Even an experienced yoga teacher is still their interpretation, their words. It's always through their own filter. As I share and use these different words, please feel free to replace them with what works for you, what feels expansive to you. None of this should make us feel shamed or unworthy. So if things like purification or cleansing of the self doesn't make you feel empowered, please kind of replace it with what you find empowering and inspiring. The last thing I want to add before I start to dive in is that the depth of all of this is obviously so big and I personally feel like I have deeper and deeper always to go in my knowledge of the text and the different practice the different practices but it's all a journey right so I hope that where I am at and what I share here can help and inspire you on your journey and from here on I'm going to dive into the roots of yoga. So yoga as a word comes from the Sanskrit word yuj or Y-U-J is how it's normally written in Latin. And this means to join, to unite or to yoke. So at its root, yoga is this search to connect to ourselves and the universe and to integrate any and all fragmented parts of ourselves. Some would describe it as the joining of the mind, body and soul or the unity between your human self and your divine self or your human self and your higher self. But either either way that you describe it, it's always this journey of self-growth, liberation and actualization. And ultimately is the journey to deeper truth in both ourselves and in our understanding of life. So as I've already said to most modern people in the West, especially those that probably don't do yoga, yoga is a 60 minute class of movement and poses. And this is definitely a big part of yoga and I will go into the roots of this. And I also think this is a very helpful part of yoga for a society like us that lives so much in the mind and we can, I think, really benefit from being in the body. And also a lot of us spend really long days sitting. So again, we really could benefit from some flowy flexibility enhancing mindful movements. At the beginning though, yoga yoga really was this search for truth and unity. And the ancient yogis did this primarily through meditation. So a process of inquiring within because that's where the answers always lie, right? So through meditation, by creating stillness and kind of connecting within. When I started my yoga training, the first thing, one of the first things we had to do is write an essay on our yoga journey. I knew mainly what I would write, but at the end I was quite surprised by how I finished the essay and what I wrote was this. The true sign of what yoga has taught me throughout isn't that I wanted to become a yoga teacher, rather it's that I listened to my intuition and made decisions based on its callings. I think this really beautifully summarizes what yoga has meant to me in my life and it is so kind of incredible when you think about it that in 2023 this kind of modern day woman is experiencing huge shifts in herself and rememberings of her soul through a practice that has roots in millennia ago and has been preserved through these millennia and has adapted itself so that it's still relevant to this day. I do hope to in the future share more of my yoga journey 
and kind of how I had my first class when I was 14. Honestly, I didn't love it. And then I've kind of had back and forths with what I think about yoga. And it's not until about three years ago that I kind of had to start yoga because I was going through some really, really terrible kind of basically chronic back and from being forced to do yoga because I couldn't really move through any other kind of workout way I stuck with it and then I just found so much depth so much presence presence and so much like treasure in it it has like truly changed my life so I really do hope to at some point share more of my journey because yoga to me is at the center of my life also in so many ways I think I said that in my slow living video I was like slow living is at the center of my life and honestly so is yoga so yeah this 2023 modern day woman is still getting so much from this word yoga and that word yoga was first mentioned in the Rig Veda which is an ancient text in India written around 1500 before current era so the Rig Veda is one of four ancient Vedas and the word Veda stems from the word knowledge in Sanskrit, which is the ancient language that was used in India. Uh, the Rig Veda is the oldest and the largest of these four Vedas. And the four Vedas together are a collection of ancient texts which include poems, hymns, meditations, rituals and ceremonies, philosophy, spiritual knowledge, and a lot more from the people who lived in India around 2000 before current era. So in a way, they have been described as religious texts from the ancient Vedic religion. And modern day Hinduism can also trace its roots to this Vedic ancient religion and these texts. Little is actually known about the writers but it's assumed that the text stems from the wisdom that was known orally, but also wisdom that was known even before they were written down. So the Vedas are kind of like the written summary of what orally the people were practicing, sharing and using to connect with the divine and to show their respect and reverence for the gods. Importantly, for the Vedic texts, there were a number of gods and according to the hymns in the Rig Veda, the most important deities were Agni, who was the god of fire and the intermediary between the gods and the humans, Indra, who was the god of heavens and war, Surya, the sun god, Vayu, the god of wind and Prithvi, the goddess of earth, also an ancient Sanskrit word for earth itself. So the Vedas were really did have this more religious, ceremonial and ritual emphasis. And from the Vedas stemmed the Upanishads. The Upanishads focused more on the philosophical aspects of life and more on spiritual enlightenment. Whereas the Vedas were written around 1500 BCE, the Upanishads were written around 700 to 400 BCE. Some weren't written fully until really the 5th century of CE. And the Upanishads are basically like the end of the Vedas. They're the last section of any of the Vedas and they can also be seen almost as a subsection of the Vedas. They were very significant in essentially changing philosophical thought, in marking a change in philosophical thought. 
I found an, an interesting description of this on Wikipedia that said that they document the transition from the archaic ritualism of the Veda into new religious ideas and institutions. Whereas the Vedas were more about ritual, ceremony, gods, multiple gods, the Upanishads were more about the self and enlightenment through the self. The self. There are between 18 and 200 Upanishads. It's still debated. 108 is a popular number for the number of Upanishads, but it really is still up for debate. Some have unclear origins and writers. Some can be traced to a sage. And I also read in my copy of a translation of the Upanishads that if all of them were collected, they could be the same length as the Bible. The translation of what Upanishad means can also vary. Upa means under, ni means beneath, and then sad means to sit. So as a whole, it would mean a sitting, an instruction, to sit down closely or to sit near the feet of a teacher. The Upanishads have also been called the end of the Vedas because by developing the concepts into more useful things for the individual seeking enlightenment, they really ended that Vedic period and started this new period. So what does enlightenment mean? Because this is what the Upanishads are really looking to, because they've turned away from the multiple gods of the Vedas to the one all-powerful, all-being, universal, united energy. The Upanishads also turn to the inner world and they invite this concept of you as a soul in the universe. And they invite this concept as the soul being the same as the universe. So it's this journey of seeking to know, understand and enlighten this inner spirit and also to join with the oversoul, the universe, source, God, whatever word suits you. In Sanskrit, this means the joining between Brahman, who is the universe or God, and Atman, which is the soul. The Upanishad sets out that this Atman goes through many lives on earth and this reincarnation is rooted in karma. Before I go further into karma, I'll just go back a little bit into what does enlightenment even mean? Well, I really want to emphasize that I think for each of us, that's for us to decide. Our paths are each so different and our paths to our higher self are therefore so different. So what enlightened me enlightenment is for me might be different to what it will constitute for you and what it will require for you and I also feel like there's kind of this old view or at least kind of how enlightenment was presented to me in like say my childhood that it's this end goal whereas I think more realistically and more usefully enlightenment can be seen as the path this ongoing process of seeding more light and high consciousness in us as we release darkness, as we heal, as we work through our wounds. So it's not this like, oh, here I am, I'm perfect now and enlightened, my work is done. It's like, no, you're always being more and more enlightened and you can use that word for yourself if you are on this path of healing and growth and finding more light and love from within. In a way, though, enlightenment can be our exit from the cycle of karma and reincarnation. I kind of almost want to laugh that I have, that I'm going down this path of talking about karma because 
uh, how many episodes ago, maybe two or three episodes ago, I made an episode on karmic relationships, how it's important to let go and release their implications and my recent journey with it. And then last week I was watching a video of a recorded ceremony that I couldn't make live and the lady that was talking there it was mainly about shakti and awakening your shakti but she really spoke a lot about this concept of karma versus kriya which I'll go in into about in a second but yeah karma has just kind of been this theme that keeps on popping up and this word that keeps on popping up around me a podcast that I really like to listen to also recently made an episode on karma and I honestly just haven't listened because I really wanted to go into this episode with the things that I've researched and what I think before I go and listen to this other episode and even indirectly without realizing kind of pull her views into this. So karma means action and I think this simple translation can really relieve us if that word feels really heavy. Karma is really just the fact that our actions have reactions and that they have future consequences and through karma we can evolve higher and higher into enlightenment until we are free from karma. This idea that we're free of karma I have taken a while to understand. I think I'm still getting to understand it fully on like a feeling level not just mentally but in BKS Iyengar's book Light on Life, BKS Iyengar is a very well-known yoga teacher and the man who introduced this type of yoga called Iyengar yoga. In his book he talks about how we can free ourselves from this karmic cycle of existing so he says that karma binds us to the cycle of death and rebirth and that we can free ourselves so that our actions just are. They just are without the bondage of karma. And when I read this, I really struggled with it. I think this was maybe six months ago now. But I have sat with it more and more and it really makes a lot more sense to me now. So through enlightenment, which is our daily actions, the different practices, meditations that we do, we can realize our true Atman, our true self and escape the karmic cycle. This karma is then can then be seen as the contrast to what is known as Kriya and Kriya can be seen as evolutionary action. So whereas karma binds you and it means that your actions will always have this opposing effect or similar effect. You know, you do good, you get good, you do something not great, you have a lesson where you know, you got to pay for it <laughs> in like said in a not nice way. But um, Kriya is then the activity that's evolutionary and expansive and it doesn't like bind you. It doesn't mean you also have to learn a lesson because it's from this place of love and purity and so it's not binding you in this cycle. I'm not sharing this to instill fear or anxiety but just to realize that yes, our actions do have reactions and a balancing effect and what you give, social you receive. But on our journey of growth and healing, we get to eventually go beyond that and act from Kriya where we move forward, we're evolving without being tied to this constant balancing out. A much deeper conversation could shed a lot more light on this. But for now, hopefully this is a useful insight into karma and also into this other yogic concept of Kriya. I'm not sure if Kriya is a big part of the Upanishads, but it is definitely a part of the wider yoga philosophy and definitely something you can dive into if this interests you.
For now though, to summarize the Upanishads, they introduce this joining of our individual soul with the Oversoul, God universe. And we do this by improving ourselves, by letting go of negative path patterns, by releasing our lower self from the ego, and by rising to higher consciousness. What is this called? Well, for the Upanishads, this training is called yoga. And one of the Upanishads reads, when the five senses and the mind are still, and reason rests itself in silence, then begins the path supreme. This calm steadiness of the senses is called yoga. Then one should become more watchful because yoga comes and goes. One of the key learnings of the Upanishads is the spirit, God, the divine, can only be known through this union with him, through this inner search and not merely through learning and mental activities. One of the Upanishads reads something which I, I really like, I really think this is very beautiful. Not through much learning is the Atman reach, not through the intellect and sacred teaching. He comes to the thought of those who know him beyond thought, not to those who, who imagine he can be attained by thought. He is unknown to the learned and known to the simple. This idea, I think, is very resonant with the modern day spiritual path that a lot of us take. Anyone who is on the spiritual path will tell you that it's like a very self, self journey. It's the it's journey of the self. You might read texts, you might, you know, be in groups, have a mentor, be inspired by outside things, but ultimately you're looking for something within. You're not looking to the religion or the text outside of you. And anyone who has this understanding of the spiritual path will really kind of smell it from a mile away when someone else is pretending to have answers for them. Like anyone who is, you know, telling you that they have solve something and now they can help you and save you and enlighten you to the answers that you're looking for when we're truly on the spiritual path we know that others can be the sacred mirror and invitation and teacher but ultimately everything is reached through the self and through what's inside and that's where the Upanishads that's where the Upanishads broke this way of being when you compare it with the Vedas the next text in our history of yoga and tracing its roots is the Yoga Sutras. The Yoga Sutras is what's known as classical yoga and modern yoga can really trace its roots there. The Upanishads still have links to modern day Hinduism, whereas the Yoga Sutras broke free of those Vedic Upanishads type texts and the links that they had. The Yoga Sutras was a step further away from that and sutras itself means a thread so the sutras are a series of threads some of them are literally a sentence some of them are a little bit longer and together they outline the aim and the path of yoga they are dated to 5000 bce and 300 ce dates again are very debatable and they are traced to this man, Sri Patanjali Maharishi. It's not certain if Patanjali was a single person or several people using the same title, but either way, he is often considered the father of yoga because the ideas that he systemized are still very much practiced and used today. The sutras are divided into four books and the first sutra of book one is simply, now the exposition of yoga is being made. And the second is the restraint of the, uh, 
the restraint of the modifications of the mind stuff is yoga. This at least is one of the translations that I have. I actually have two translations of the Yoga Sutra, so I'm just using one here, but even a slight change in translation can sometimes have slightly different implications. So I'm just noting that here if you wanna explore different translations or if you've heard of different translations. Similarly, in some ways to the Upanishads, the sutras offer a path to enlightenment or what's known as Samadhi. The sutras explain what things on the path to this self-actualization are in our way and how karma can stem from these obstacles of the ego. Most specifically, and what is still used very much today in by yoga teachers and in classes is this eightfold path. So there, there's this thing called the eight limbs of yoga or Ashtanga yoga. This is where the physical practice of Ashtanga yoga today can be traced to. And these eight limbs of yoga are described in book two, Sutra 29. This sutra really is the eight limbs of yoga are Yama, Niyama, Asana, Pranayama, Pratyahara, Dharana, Dhyana, and Samadhi. Translated, this means attitudes towards others, attitudes towards ourselves, postures, breath, breath control, breath work, withdrawal of the senses, concentration, meditation, and then absorption or this super conscious state or enlightenment. To achieve this final state, Samadhi, we go through the first seven stages. The way that the Yoga Sutras list these is that you kind of have to go in order, but obviously sometimes you might be going back and forth and different ones support each other. So for example, you are encouraged by the Yoga Sutras to have this postural practice first before you go to breath work, but sometimes the two can complement each other and obviously they don't have to be this clear cut, very separated things. More than that though, the path to Samadhi is also described by total surrender to God in the Yoga Sutras. So again, this idea of uniting and joining with the universe, source, God, the divine. I will be complementing this series on my podcast with a couple of blog posts. So rather than going into the eight limbs more here, I will link below all the blog posts that I post on yoga and one of them will be this eight limbs path, these eight limbs of yoga. So if you want to learn more about it, you can read there. In here though, I'll include a couple of things on the sutras that won't be in the blog post, but really link well into this idea of self-actualization. So firstly, maybe you picked up that one of the eight limbs is asana postural practice. So what we know today as the that one hour class is a class of mainly asana. And this is indeed one of the eight limbs of yoga that Patanjali describes, but it's just one of eight. It's not the whole thing. And more than that, it's not just the eight limbs aren't just breath work and meditation and yoga. The first two are our attitudes and how we treat others and then how we treat ourselves. So yama is things like non-violence, being truthful, not stealing, not being greedy. And niyama is your attitudes towards yourself. So kind of 
taking care of yourself, ensuring you are cleansing any kind of negative thinking, any wounds. It also includes studying spiritual books and worshipping and practicing gratitude. Something that I found very interesting that I actually didn't know of before in my studies and reading of the sutras is that the sutras themselves advise that when we're disturbed by negative thoughts, opposite ones, so positive ones, should be thought of. And when I read this, I was like, wow, this is just like affirmations, kind of, right? So I, a lot of the time, I've shared on this podcast many times before, when I have a negative thought, I try to be like, thank you, no thank you, and have a positive thought instead, whether that be about myself, about someone else, or an attitude, an attitude towards life. The example, some examples are like if you're having thoughts of hatred, the opposite to that would be love. You're just trying to have a clear, pure mind, like one filled with love and light. For Patanjali, he said that when negative thoughts or acts like violence are done, caused to be done or even approved of, so basically you don't have to do the thing, you can just think the thing and you're still kind of doing it, is based on ignorance and it brings certain pain. This idea of ignorance is quite big for yoga, yogic philosophy. In the sutras, there are four types of ignorances that are described. Ignorance in Sanskrit is avidya. And the four types of ignorances that block this enlightenment process is mistaking the temporary for the internal. So this idea that we're not our body, we're this eternal soul within, and we shouldn't forget that. Impurity, mistaking the impure for the pure mistaking pain for pleasure and mistaking the not self for the self. Staying with these eight limbs of yoga for a bit longer, asana is just one of those eight right but even then it's really not what we think of asana or postural practice. It isn't the poses as we know it and even Another text in the 15th century, the Hathapradapika, which expands on asana and offers about 15 poses, even then, these 15 poses are mainly poses for sitting down. So asana to the yoga sutras was just a steady and comfortable posture. And really the steady and comfortable posture was the one that someone could sit in for meditation. When I later go into the Hatha Yoga Pradapika, or probably in the next episode rather, I will share more about how postural practice came to be central and how caring for the body came to be central and kind of the first step of the yogic journey. But in the yoga sutras, asana is still kind of like step three and then one that builds onto the others and one that's mainly used to describe how someone is sitting for meditation and for breathing practices. This definition though is still really useful for how we practice yoga today. How, are, how much are we comfortable in different poses that we do? The more that we practice yoga, obviously the more comfortable that we become in poses, but a lot of the time we might be in a pose and we're like fighting our body, we're fighting our way into it and that's, that's not true comfort. And then steadiness is about not being passive in the pose. Like we want to be strong in the pose, but also comfortable in our strength. So I really like this description of balancing the two. We're not so comfortable that we become passive, but we're not so steady that we're like clinging for dear life into the pose. In The Heart of Yoga by Desi Kachar, there is this 
description of the steady yet comfortable thing and he describes it as he kind of compares it rather to the king of snakes who is floating in the ocean his long body is coiled into a really comfortable couch that forms the bed for the god vishnu the snake's thousand heads form a protective umbrella above the lord vishnu and it's on this umbrella where our earth rests so in terms of comfort, the snake's soft body serves as a comfortable resting place. But at the same time, it is steady enough to support the entire earth. So when you're doing poses, next time in a yoga class, you can bring this to mind and compare yourself with the snake who is comfortable yet also steady and strong. The Yoga Sutras also have quite a bit on this concept of karma, which we've discussed already. So I'll kind of link in how this continues into the Yoga Sutras. The Yoga Sutras write that from Samadhi, all afflictions and karma cease. So once we've reached the state of Samadhi, we are no longer governed by karma. The Yoga Sutras also write that only the minds born of meditation are free from karmic impressions. So again, this concept of meditation as a path to enlightenment and as a way to free ourselves of karma. The sutras also describe the actions of the yogi as neither good nor bad. This links to that idea of kriya, that our actions eventually, when they're free from karma, they don't have an opposing effect of them, they just are. The actions of others, though, who haven't achieved this state yet, are either good, bad, or mixed. As I was reading the sutras and kind of diving into how they link and how, it's kind of like, you know, every time you read something again, you get new and new things and benefits from it. And I've just seen some of the, the things that I've already read in new light. And light is kind of an ironic word right now because this is exactly what I wanted to talk about. So as I've been reading the sutras, there are a couple that to me are just echoing A Course in Miracles, which is what I'm reading right now in my personal journey. Um, for example, A Course in Miracles talks about having right knowledge versus perception. So you want to have knowledge rather than perception. And in the Yoga Sutras, they talk about the sources of right knowledge, which are direct perception inference and scriptural testimony so it's this emphasis on having the right knowledge through the right per perception the a course in miracles also really talks about the light so the light within us the light of the world and in the yoga sutras as well the kind of aim the benefit of pranayama of breathing practices of one of the eight limbs of karma is that the veil over the inner light is destroyed. One of the sutras reads, as its result, as the result of pranayama, the veil over, over the inner light is destroyed. So through purifying, cleansing ourselves through this element of air, through breathing practices, the light within, which in Sanskrit is prakasa, is enlightened. Before that, it was covered by mental darkness and by pulling out all of the yuck, all of the muck, all of the trash in there, we remove the veil and we can free our inner light. We can come to know it, we can come to express it, and we can come to live it. 
this is again very similar to the whole concept of A Course in Miracles because in some ways it is a mind training and a mind purifying book and a mind purifying set of exercises. You have these different lessons to read and contemplate each day and essentially what they have done for me, I've never really spoken to anyone else who's read them but I'm sure it's not a unique experience. Essentially what they've done to me is they have kind of pushed in more and more positive and higher thinking and then by doing that cleansing and removing all of the lower thinking and all of the negative thoughts. The next sutra following on from that says that when the inner light is destroyed the mind becomes fit for concentration which is the following limbs of yoga. After pranayama we have pratyahara withdrawal of the senses and then we have dharana, which is concentration, so binding your mind to a place, object, or idea. And after that, we have dhyana, which is meditation, or in the Yoga Sutra, is described as the continuous flow of cognition toward the object. So you are really becoming one with the object, and then eventually you reach through this samadhi, which is in the Yoga Sutra is described as the same as meditation when there's the shining of the object alone as if devout of form. So importantly, it's not that we practice samadhi, it's not that we do something to do samadhi, it's, that it's this natural effect of dhyana and of dhyana and dharana. These last three limbs together, dharana, dhyana, samadhi, can be known as samayama. The sutras say that the practice of these three upon one object is called samayama and the mastery of this, from the mastery of this comes the light of knowledge. Is basically, to me, the way I'm reading this is, and I, the idea is that we concentrate and concentrate on an object so that we may know it better and through this knowing better comes the ultimate knowledge. The sutras then give some examples of this and some of these I feel like are almost a bit comical because it's kind of like duh but obviously it's still very powerful. So it says things like by samayama on friendliness and other such qualities the power to transmute them is obtained. By samayama on the strength of elephants and other animals their strength is obtained. By samayama on the light within the knowledge of the subtle hidden and remote is obtained. Again, link to the light within, and I now am just finding so many similarities with A Course in Miracles, um, which is not where I thought this episode would take me. <laughs> okay, final thing on the Yoga Sutras is the, where the word Om, the chant Om, comes from. I want to include this here because it's a very popular way to end classes or begin them in the West today. So I think it's really useful if we know where this comes from. So according to Vedic philosophy, the word Om is the primordial first ever sound of the universe. So there's this idea of first there was sound and that sound was Om. So the Om is the sound of the universe. In the Yoga Sutras, the sutras describe total devotion and dedication to God which is Isvara and the word expressive of Isvara the yoga sutras write is the mystic sound Om. The sutras say that to repeat this sound with reflection upon its meaning is an aid on our journey and from this practice all obstacles disappear 
and simultaneously dawns knowledge of the inner self. So Om is the sound of the universe. It is a chant that can help us to connect with that primordial universal energy. And if we break it up a little bit more, I learned this first in my teacher training and I was kind of like, wow, how did I not know this before? But Om can be broken down into A, U and M. So rather than O-M, you can write it as A-U-M. Every language pretty much right begins with the letter A. So A is simply that beginning. Then as the sound moves forward between the tongue and the palate, we come to U. So the U, A, U. And then at the end, we say M, which is this deeper sound deeper in our body. The Yoga Sutras translation that I have describes it as A symbolizes creation, U symbolizes preservation, and M symbolizes culmination. So together, Om is the beginning to end. It is everything. It is God, the universe, all at once. Ah, so with that I will be bringing this episode to a close. In part two I'll take us further into the 16th 16th century with the Hatha Yoga Pradapika which introduced the practice of asana more which introduced this cleansing of our subtle body including the chakras and the kundalini energy that is waiting to be awakened And then I'll take us all the way to modern day yoga and how we view yoga today. I hope you found it interesting. I hope you found it as fascinating as I did. I definitely learned a lot more and also re-remembered some things that I'd studied before as I was preparing for this episode. I hope it's given you more light on what yoga can offer us and inspired you to search more, if anything, here is of interest to you and you want to dive deeper in your own time. As I've already mentioned, I will start to link the blog posts on yogic philosophy as I add them to my website. So there'll be a whole one on the eight limbs of yoga, summarizing everything, making it very structured and easy to follow. Separate ones on different limbs of yoga, ones on breath work, on different mudras and bandhas and Also ones on different poses that you can do if you're just looking for a bit of relaxation and connection with your body. So that will be in the description. I'll add them as I post them. Otherwise, for now, I wish you a wonderful day, a wonderful week, and I hope to see you in the next one. Bye.